0: Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz.
1: And I'm Abram Benning.
0: And this is Poetry for All.
1: In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time.
0: And today we are delighted to have Wendy Wall as our guest. Wendy Wall is the Avalon Professor of the Humanities and Professor of English at Northwestern University. She is the author of multiple books that focus on early modern literature and culture, and most recently, she is the co-creator with Leah Knight of The Poulter Project, Poet in the Making, and this is an online project which presents the scientific, religious, political, and personal poetry of 17th century writer Hester Poulter. Today, Wendy is here to discuss Hester Poulter's poem, View But This Tulip. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joanne and Abram, for letting me be
2: on your podcast to talk about (laughs) a poet that I find so amazing and a poem that I really love.
0: Well,
1: that's so great. Could you tell us a little bit about who Hester Poulter was and what inspired you to create this project?
2: Sure. No one knew that Hester Poulter existed until quite recently. It was a graduate student actually at the University of Leeds Library working on a digital project that found a, a manuscript in their collections that no one had really noticed. And he opened it, and it had 120 amazing poems about science, religion, grief, politics, and an unfinished romance. And this book had lain hidden, unknown, maybe in somebody's attic for 300 years. Hmm. Um, So I found it amazing that there was this woman in the mid-17th century who was really in the vanguard of intellectual movements, knew about current up-to-date science, had an amazing poetic ability, and we don't know about her because she didn't circulate her poems. So Pester Poulter was a woman born in 1605. She got married at age 15. She had 15 children. Wow. 13 of whom died before her. Think about that. So that means that she was pregnant 11 years. She was a very interesting woman who described herself as living in seclusion. She was the religious and political minority in her county because she was a royalist. So she was living at this time of English Civil War, the rise of science, the beginning of modern philosophy, and she was avidly interested in all of these things. And yet, We didn't know she existed until quite recently.
1: That's amazing. And so now we have the Poulter Project, which we'll link to on the podcast website, so you can check this out for yourself. But it's an amazing online project that makes her poems available with headnotes and curated and with all kinds of uh, ways into these poems. But to give you a taste of that, we thought we would just introduce one of her poems today. So, Wendy, would you be willing to read for us what is her 105th poem, View But This Tulip? Sure. Sure.
2: View but this tulip, rose, or gilliflower, and by a finite, see an infinite power. These flowers into their chaos were retired till human art them raised and re-inspired with beating, macerating, fermentation, calcining chemically with segregation. Then, lest the air these secrets should reveal, shut up the ashes under Hermes' seal. Then, with a candle or gentle fire, you may reanimate at your desire these gallant plants, but if you cool the glass, to their first principles they'll quickly pass. From sulfur, salt, and mercury they came. When they dissolve, they turn into the same. Then, seeing a wretched mortal hath the power to recreate a verbiage of a flower, why should we fear, though sadly we retire into our cause? Our God will re-inspire our dormant dust and keep alive the same with an all-quickening, everlasting flame. Then, though I into atoms scattered be, in indivisibles, I'll trust in thee. Then let this comfort me in my sad story. Dust is but four degrees removed from glory by nature's paths. But God from death and night can raise this flesh to endless life and light? Then, my impatient soul, contented be, For thou a glorious spring ere long shall see. After these gloomy shades of death and sorrow, Thou shalt enjoy an everlasting morrow. As wheat in new-plowed furrows rotting lies And capable of quickening till it dies, So into dust this flesh of mine must turn And lie awhile, forgotten, in my urn. Yet when the sea and earth and hell shall give their treasures up, my body too shall live, not like the resurrection at Grand Care where men revived in straight of life despair, but with my soul, my flesh shall reunite and ne'er be involved with death and night, but live in endless pleasure, love, and light. Then hallelujahs will I sing to thee, my gracious God, to all eternity. Then at thy dissolution patient be. If man can raise a flower, God can thee.
0: Oh, that was a beautiful reading. Thank you so much. One of the things that occurs to me, and, you know, our listeners may or may not have the text of this poem in front of them, but this is categorized as an emblem. So this is, the title of the poem is View But This Tulip, but it's also called Emblem Forty. I wonder if you could talk to us about what that means. How is this poem an emblem?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And an emblem is usually seen as a didactic poem, a poem that teaches a lesson. And it usually has an image that was you know, in the book, printed, or drawn in a manuscript, and then a motto that kind of summed up the image, and then a short poem that resolved something or gave you the meaning of it. So what's so interesting to me is that Poulter saw these poems as emblems But they're called naked emblems. They don't have an image that precedes them.
0: And the reason that interests me is because, of course, emblems are so tied to, as you say, didacticism and teaching, but also they're a source of um, powerful religious meditation in this time period in which she's writing, right? And that interplay between word and image becomes so important for someone who's trying to understand their own doubts about religion and faith and the afterlife. Absolutely. And that's one reason I find Poulter very interesting in general,
2: but also in this poem. She takes scientific and religious issues and puts them together. So the idea of whether you could prove something by observation, by looking at it, by empirical senses, was a huge part of the rise of modern science at this time. But she's trying to tell her reader, do this imperative, view but this tulip, and you can see something that will give you confidence that god can resurrect our bodies after our death that we need not fear a sense of loss because all will be gathered together and you need to have faith in it by doing something looking making doing a science experiment in some ways
1: and just so readers are clear can we walk through a little bit of what her scientific experiment here is so the first 14 lines are really that experiment she's got these flowers She's got macerating, fermentation, calcining chemically with segregation. What is happening in the, in the first 14 <laughs> lines here? What is she doing with these flowers?
2: Well, it's, she's giving kind of a recipe, right? You could almost do this. She's taking a flower that has been fading and picked, and she's showing all the different ways you can alter it materially to try to save it. So you, you beat it up to macerate, you know, as to to soak in a liquid and, and kind of, if you're making a cocktail, you would muddle it, you know, so she's mm-hmm. muddling the flour and then she's fermenting it. Calcining is reducing something down to its basic chalk or ashes, usually with fire. Mm-hmm. And so she's basically distilling it. And this is something that, you know, you'd say, oh, well, could a woman really know about this? Actually, women did forms of these kinds of Chemical experiments when they were doing their household labor, so a lot of recipes for medicines and foods have them doing mm. calcining and macerating and fermentation. That's wow. great.
1: So then, when she when she holds a candle to it or a gentle fire to it, she says, "You may reanimate these flowers at your desire." Mm. Uh, and so she is she's she's transforming them, but she's also in a certain sense keeping them alive.
2: And people did this with varying degrees of success. Sometimes people <laughs> thought that the plant would actually revitalize, and sometimes people thought that it would put out. An image of the flower or something. It wasn't completely clear how it worked, <laughs> but people did try it. Like this wouldn't have been seen as crazy science mm-hmm. or pseudoscience. This would have been seen as alchemy moving into chemistry.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. That's really helpful because I read this poem a number of times and as with a little bit of skepticism, I thought to myself, um, I kill plants all the time, and I have never been able to bring them back to life. And this seems like a little bit of a reach. Uh, so. Well, I think
1: well, what it does do is it raises the question of how much hope there really is in this poem. I mean, I, I do think there's a way in which you could read this poem as incredibly confident and saying, mm-hmm. of course, God can raise the body and the soul and, and put me back together and, and bring me on into immortality. Of course. But on the other hand, as, as we were noting before, there isn't actually a flower to look at at the beginning of this. It's a naked emblem. There's no flower there. There's no illustration there. So has she really done it? Has she really brought uh, a plant back to life?
2: Yeah, Abram, and I think the fact that we have the last line, if man can raise a flower, God can thee. And you think what if man can't raise a flower does that mean (laughs) you know we're stuck and we don't get to have a resurrection so that word if is very
0: prominent in Mm. the last line even so if as we said at the beginning the flower is a kind of emblem but also in the renaissance people referred to poems as posies and as flowers and collections of poems as gardens of various delights and so forth, she's made a flower with the poem. Like there's something about the poem itself that she has brought to life that at least gives us some kind of hope.
2: Yeah, and actually, Joanne, that's the reading I prefer. I like Mm -hmm. the confident, triumphant reading where she says, view but this tulip. And when the reader gets to the end, the reader is holding this poem that is, as you say in the Renaissance, a posy called a flower. Mm -hmm. And she has made this flower, like I have Mm -hmm. made a flower, and it can be read over and over. And of course, the story of her biography is very uh, relevant here because her poems seem to have come back to life yeah, after being dead yeah. for 300 years. We didn't know they existed. You know, they mm-hmm. could have just lay in oblivion forever if somebody hadn't found them in their their attic in England and put them up on auction. So in some ways, the flower has lived on. And when she says, view but this flower in that bossy imperative way, you know, where you tell the reader what to do, even if she starts to doubt and try to convince her soul at the end, you will see the body again. You know, there is a way in which I feel that there's a kind of triumph. Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: So this is about, I don't know, say 50-ish lines long. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of curious if we could talk about the way that it's structured. Where are its turning points? How, does it, how, do, how would we read where she's making transitions?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you might have already mentioned one of the key turning points. That's when she takes the emblem, meaning the thing that you're supposed to see, and interprets it. So mm-hmm. at line 15, she says, then seeing that I can revive a flower, why should we? meaning you and me and the reader, all of us mortals, why should we fear? So there is a turning point there. But if you keep reading the poem, it keeps using the word then, then, then. It's like eight times it starts a line with then. Mm. So every time you think that you finish the project, there's another step in the sequence, you know, mm-hmm. then my impatient soul contented be, she says in line 27. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I like to think of Hester Poulter in general as very concerned with cycling, with transformations where you return to something, pick it up and remake it. You kind of slightly tweak it or twist it. So she, In her poems, she'll frequently have a poem and then she'll return to that same title Mm. Um, of, you know, 20 lines, 20 poems later and kind of return to the theme, worry it again, test it, you know, try a different metaphor. And so in this poem, I I really like to see the rhymes as a way that she created language units, you know, like a rhyme is like a little atom and she, you know, calcines it and reduces it and brings it back again in the middle of the poem. So if you look at the beginning of the poem, there's these rhymes in, in lines three and four these flowers into their chaos were retired till human art then raised and re-inspired. So we have retired, re-inspired. And then I notice formally that she returns to that rhyme, which is a little unusual, in the middle of the poem, lines 17 and 18, and changes it so that it's retire instead of retired, and re-inspire instead of re-inspired. And that's right when she's saying the pivotal moment, why should we fear? though sadly we retire into our, God, so, into our cause. So in other words, she's saying we can be resurrected, even though we were the makers in the first part of the poem, we can be the object remade by God. And she returns to the words that she remakes. Wow! Yeah. And I really like that kind of cycling
0: back to the beginning of the poem to revivify it and resurrect it. And what I love about some of the lines and passages that you're describing is For me, the excitement of this poem is actually how dramatic it is. So yes, it's meditative. Yes, in some ways, it's a series of commands and arguments. But it's very performative to me because it starts by a a mode of address that's addressing a you. But if you cool the glass to their first principles, they'll quickly pass. Then there's this sort of plural Why should we fear, though sadly we retire into our cause? And then very quickly, she shifts to the I, and she stays on the first-person perspective for much of the rest of the poem. Then, though I into Adam's scattered be, in indivisibles, I'll trust in thee. Then let this comfort me in my sad story. It becomes very personal very quickly.
2: Yeah, I love that too, and I think it becomes increasingly personal she. She Mm. tries to say, "Okay, I've written this didactic poem. I've said that, you know, I should have faith that my body will not, you know, fester in my grave. Because, you know, this isn't really a poem about whether the soul will escape the body and be eternal. She knows that will happen. She just can't figure out how God is going to come back and get her body at the final judgment in Christian theology. How, how, how am I going to get my body back, right? <laughs> the idea that your body goes to you know dirt and dirt is eaten by worms and worms are eaten by fish and men eat fish. And this is something Shakespeare worried about, John Donne worried about. Well, then where was your body when God needs to get it at the judgment day? It's been recycled through all these people's gullets. And you know where are you? And she's worried about getting her body back, right? And so she, at the end, after this personal doubt and kind of turning the poem to herself, she turns to her soul to say, you know, don't worry, you know, you will reunite with the soul. And then finally, uh, uh, Joanne, you've talked about how it turns to the personal, the last lines turn back to the reader, right? Mm -hmm. Then at thy dissolution, patient be, if man can raise a flower, God can thee. So it's either the reader or her own body. And you don't know, you simply (laughs) don't know at that point, you know, what is who she's trying to console
1: mm. when she comes to this key sort of thematic element of being divided from your body and how are you going to get your body back the word she uses is in indivisibles i'll trust in thee indivisible of course was the word for atoms at the time so she's saying well i'll be scattered into many different atoms but atoms themselves cannot be scattered into anything else on the mm-hmm. other hand she's also in effect saying i am Indivisible. That is, that the soul of the body won't finally be divided. Uh, I'll yeah. be reunited beca- precisely because the body is made up of indivisibles.
2: Oh, I love that reading. Yeah, I love the idea of indivisible, not only as an atom but as the final union of body and soul that's going to happen in this poem. And, you know, I just love that Poulter is showing off here, you know, like she did with the calcining. signing, you know, she wants to show off in her poems that she knows Galileo's theories of astronomy. How did she know that it was only in Latin and it hadn't even been published, you know, it, um, for her to read. We never would have thought a woman living where she lived would have had access to some of these concepts. Mm. She's really interested in atomism in so many of her poems. So she, can't, she wants to throw in there, though I into Adam scattered be in Indivisibles, I'll trust in thee, to show that she knows the debates that are going on about whether Aristotle was right or whether these other classical thinkers about atomism were right. And she kind of gets it in there as she's, you know, declaring a kind of triumphant faith in God. And if you look at the last lines of the poem, it's been in couplets. But suddenly, it's like she gets really tricky and wants to show off a little here. And there's the uh, the triplet. She has three rhyming lines: reunite, night, light. Right. So she's drawing out the conclusion. She's deferring the ending. And then instead of the the couplet, she shows off again. I say show off, but I mean that in a positive sense. She's like dexterous in her ability to go back and get a piece of language. So she goes back to the middle of the poem and finds the rhyming lines, though I into Adam scattered be in indivisibles, I'll trust in thee. And she makes a quatrain. The eternity, thee, and thee are the last lines of the poem. So we have three rhyming lines and then four to kind of just amplify the way that Joanne was describing her The technical ability to make a poem, which is a way of staying off death, right? Staying off loss, mm-hmm. like keeping it going in some ways. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. And just thinking about that, keeping it going, staving off death. I mean, some of these lines feel like they could or should be the end of the poem. So in individuals, I'll trust in thee. period. That could be the end. Uh, But instead we get this next line, then let this comfort me in my sad story. And then we come to another ending, but God from death and night can raise his flesh to endless uh, life and light, period, the end, except it keeps going (laughs) then. But the way then that she comes to the ending, as you say, is is this amplification of three rhymes in a row and then four rhymes in a row. So now we really know we're coming to the ending. And what I love about that (laughs) ending is apart from all those large words at the beginning, the simplicity of the end, those three monosyllabic words, God can thee. Uh you you know you've come to the end when you end on this really powerful short three-word summation of the poem itself.
2: Yeah, I, I love that. I love that idea that the poem keeps ending and then starting again, because of course that's what we've been talking about is like the resurrection of something, like when it's come to its terminal point and then you start over, you know, you create a different material form. And this goes back to our two readings. I mean, either the starting again is doubt. It's like, let me talk myself into believing in this reunion and this transformation of the body. Or it's more what Joanne was suggesting, where it's kind of rhetorically taking control and amplifying and proliferating it more to show human uh, confidence in what you can do in the face of doubt. So I think both readings are beautifully staged in this poem.
0: With all that we've talked about, I wonder if we could ask you to read the poem one more time so we can think about some of the things that you've addressed. Sure.
2: Now I'm wondering if I'm going to read it and and what's going to happen to it in its second (laughs) incarnation. (laughs) View but this tulip, rose, or gilliflower, and by a finite, see an infinite power. These flowers into their chaos were retired till human art then raised and re-inspired with beating, macerating, fermentation, calcining chemically with segregation. Then, lest the air these secrets should reveal, shut up the ashes under Hermes' seal. Then with a candle or a gentle fire, you may reanimate at your desire these gallant plants. But if you cool the glass to their first principles, they'll quickly pass. From sulfur, salt, and mercury, they came. When they dissolve, they turn into the same. Then seeing a wretched mortal had the power to recreate a verbious of a flower, why should we fear, though sadly we retire into our cause? Our God will re-inspire our dormant dust and keep alive the same with an all-quickening, everlasting flame. Then, though I into atoms scattered be, in indivisibles I'll trust in thee. Then let this comfort me in my sad story. Dust is but four degrees removed from glory by nature's paths. But God, from death and night, can raise this flesh to endless life and light. Then, my impatient soul, contented be, for thou a glorious spring ere long shall see. After these gloomy shades of death and sorrow, thou shalt enjoy an everlasting morrow, as wheat in new-plowed furrows rotting lies, incapable of quickening till it dies. So into dust this flesh of mine must turn and lie awhile forgotten in my urn. Yet, when the sea and earth and hell shall give their treasures up, my body too shall live, not like the resurrection at grand care where men revive, then straight of life despair. But with my soul, my flesh shall reunite and ne'er involve it be with death and night, but live in endless pleasure, love, and light. Then hallelujahs will I sing to thee, my gracious God, to all eternity. Then at thy dissolution, patient be, If man can raise a flower, God can thee.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for reading that.
2: Was there anything different that you heard in that reading? Because I did hear Abram's God can thee felt very, that summation kind of came out in the second reading. I heard the if extra
1: loud this time.
2: (laughs) We convinced each other. That's right.
1: (laughs) Well, to learn more about Hester Poulter and the Poulter Project, you can visit poulterproject.northwestern.edu.
0: We also hope that you'll remember to subscribe to the Poetry for All podcast via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or any other provider. The last time we checked sixty five hundred people had downloaded episodes of poetry for all that is a lot of listeners. So we would love <laughs> yes. to know we would love to know who you are, who are That's these right. people that are <laughs> listening <laughs> to us. Good God, I mean, you know. We'd like to know what your experiences have been like, so please write a review so we know how we're doing. We hope, too, that you'll follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and if
2: I can add, The Poulter Project is an ongoing, growing collaboration, so we invite you, the listener, to edit a poem and send it in. And we then have it reviewed, and we are getting more and more poems by the week.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you all for listening.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me um, on this podcast. I learned so much from it, and I really enjoyed talking to you about this poem. Thank you,
0: Libby.
1: Thank you.